Today's episode of Well Actually is brought to you by Game Time. Okay, folks, time for a little pop quiz. Do you think MMA tickets are cheaper three weeks or three hours before the fight? You can find the answer with Game Time, the ticket buying app that proves patience is more than just a virtue. It can save you some serious cash. Game Time is the leader in last minute tickets. Pick your deal, see the view from where you're sitting, and buy in two taps. More than 12 million fans have downloaded the Game Time app and discovered the fastest, easiest way to get into the game. So download Game Time in the App Store or Google Play, work that clock to your advantage, and score last minute tickets. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Well, Actually, the Athletic MMA's podcast about MMA and other stuff. As usual, this is your host, Fernanda Prates, but today we're trying something a little different. We're doing a Q&A. I know, I know, it's a bit early in the podcast for me to do that. Usually the order goes, you get people to be interested in you first, and then they ask questions. But I guess I'm just a rebel like that. I don't play by your rules. Much like mathlete slash musician Kevin G of the timeless classic Mean Girls, I don't let the haters stop me from doing my thing. Also, it was really just supposed to be a bonus episode because I legit expected to get like three questions. And then I would have to make the rest of them up and invent fake names and read them in funny voices and wallow in insecurity and self-doubt. Basically, it would have been a lot of work. But much to my surprise, I actually got quite a lot of questions. I got so many, in fact that I won't be able to get to all of them. I did, however, try to get a good mix of strictly MMA stuff, life stuff, political stuff, and even conspiracy theory stuff, because why the hell not? Let's get crazy. If I didn't get to your question, I'm sorry. It was probably because I'd either touched on it at a different point, or because it's a topic that I want to discuss more deeply in the future, or simply because it was too difficult and I didn't want to sound dumb trying to answer it. Seriously, there was some deep questions that required thinking, and I just didn't want to throw stuff out there. But I did get to as many as I could with the time that I had, and hopefully it wasn't an absolute disaster. And with that message of hope and beaming confidence, I begin. I'll start with the very first question that I got from Scott Fulton, because it's just weird enough to set the tone for the whole thing. Um, he asks, if you gave MMA journalists 10 million to start a promotion, who would you think would turn a profit fastest? I'll start with the one who wouldn't turn a profit and who would probably end up with three magic beans and a ticket to Fire Festival. And that would be me. I'm basically allergic to money. It's almost a gift how bad I am at both making it and retaining it, let alone turning it into profit. I'd probably just end up trusting some dodgy accountant who'd run off to Ibiza and my promotion would be dead faster than you can say strike box. My bet would be on Luke Thomas, for the sole reason that he looks like someone who has his shit together. Have you seen him? Have you heard him? That is the voice of a man who knows what he's doing. We're not friends on a personal level, though our professional interactions have always been great, super positive. But Luke strikes me as the type of friend that you'd call when you need super specific grown-up advice, like which investment options sound safer in this economy. And then he also seems like the type of friend who would tell you right to your face that getting bangs was a stupid decision, meaning just the right amount of good cop and bad cop in one person. So my money's on him. Uh, but I do have an alternative in Mike Bond, uh, we know that he's good with stats and numbers and all that boring stuff that most of us avoid. He's good. He's got like a good matchmaking mind. He has like a full column about it. 
I have my doubts whether it's ever he ever ever sleeps because it's working pretty much all the time and I would know I worked with him in the same team and he made me feel bad about myself. And he's from Canada, which seems to be like one of the last few reasonable countries left in this hellscape of a planet. So there you go. Uh, the next question comes from Nick Jolly. A few weeks ago, you spoke about Glover, and uh, Nick means Glover Teixeira, the UFC light heavyweight, um, in glowing terms. As a writer, fan, and human being, how hard is it for you to see some guys who just won't retire even though they've got little, if anything, left to prove? And then uh, parenthesis, but keep putting themselves up for difficult fights. Ugh. Okay, I need to catch my breath for this one because I'm going to get philosophical. Uh, as a journalist, I try as best as I can from um, to, to refrain from issuing public judgment when it comes to sort of that subject. One thing I try to always, whenever I'm reading or writing or listening, I try to always, always, always be empathetic. And we have this running joke about MMA retirements and how they never seem to stick and people and people doubt others when they say that they're done and we have that collective I told you so moment when we're proven right the whole thing is sort of like an MMA bit at this point and I can't sit here and say that I've never took part in that because I have uh, but I'm trying to like not do it anymore or do less of it because I, I do think about the unforgiving nature of these people's jobs and I think about how I would feel if one day I was no longer able to say right for a living granted that day will come but barring some exceptional event like a rare disease or an accident chances are I'll still be able to do it for a really long time now imagine being in your mid-40s which is still so damn young and you've put all your time and your net energy and your passion and your life really into something and then all of a sudden your body's like hey so I just don't dig what you're doing here anymore And even if your body still feels okay, or if you feel like you're still okay, you're still dealing with the people around you basically seeing you out. Because all everyone can see is this huge stopwatch that's hanging over your head. I can't begin to imagine what that's like. Which is not to say, of course, that we shouldn't hold promotions and commissions accountable. That's why they're there. To ensure that what is ultimately a very dangerous sport is executed in the safest way possible. But I do think that we can collectively, as fans and as media, ask those questions from these regulating bodies without personally shaming the fighters. Um, but then, as a fan, as a human being... I do get a little sad uh, in some stances. Maybe not Glover's particularly because he's actually a very, very smart guy. And I like to think, maybe naively, but um, I do like to think that he's one of those people who will know when to say when. And I do think that he hasn't really shown any signs that would make me particularly concerned for him. But yeah, when you get to know these people and their families and you're also aware of just how much difference one fight makes... It gives you a lot of pause. That one final fight can be the one in which, I don't know, a retina is detached. And then you spend the rest of your life blind in one eye, you know. Or that one more fight or that one more camp in which you're sparring and taking concussive blows. They can be the thing that caused serious long-lasting damage. Of course, you can argue that's the case with any fighter of any age. And obviously, as you get older and even that nanosecond slower... It does make you a little more vulnerable. 
And that gets especially sad when it's not just the case of like getting a fighter itch or, you know, a fighter missing being up there, but when these guys actually need the money. It makes you think about just how the entire sport is set up and operated. And yeah, it gets really hard not to start questioning a lot of things. Uh, next, in honor of the International Podcast Day, I'm going to answer Chris's question. Uh, he's at MMA Maryland, by the way. Uh, what part of recording a podcast are you finding most enjoyable slash most challenging so far? So challenging everything. <laughs> it's so hard <laughs> just having the idea, then convincing myself my idea is not shit, then writing the script on my idea, and then convincing myself that that script is not shit, then actually recording the script, and then all of that in my second language and basically by myself. Uh, so yeah, I basically second guess myself every step, step of the way I do this. I stumble on words because words are hard. Uh, I worry. I freak out. I wonder why the fuck I'm even doing this. I always think that the next episode will be the one in which everyone discovers I'm a fraud. I contemplate moving to a Caribbean island, changing my name, starting a whole new life as a scuba diving instructor. So yes, that's a, there's a whole process and the whole thing is very challenging. But uh, there's the enjoyable part, which is basically getting it done. I haven't done many episodes yet, of course. I think this is the fourth. Math is hard. But uh, so far in all of them, including this one, there were multiple points in which I was like, what am I doing? I can't pull this off. Who am I kidding? But then I go ahead and do it. And Chris, our producer, edits. And then it's out there in multiple platforms. And I can see it and hear it. And other people can too. And I just reach a point where it's like, it might be good. It might not be good. But it's done. It's out there. I did it. And that's pretty cool already. Still on that theme, this comes from The Sound of Violence, a podcast about MMA podcasts. That is getting so meta, right? I'm, I'm just, yeah, I'm blown away by this. But uh, he asks, what are some of your favorite podcasts? Also, what Brazilian booze or drinking customs are us Americans sleeping on? I like the segue there. Like, very, two very, <laughs> very, very natural transaction, transition there from podcast to Brazilian booze. But uh, let's start with my area of expertise, which is, of course, booze. We do have a typical drink called cachaça, and it's what it's used to make the world famous caipirinha. I personally don't think you're missing out on that much, though. It's kind of like a mojito, except it will fuck you up. As for the custom that you're sleeping on, I wouldn't call it a custom as much as a convenience, but here you can drink in public basically anywhere in the country. Uh, the legal drinking age is 18, and there's really no such thing as a last call in most places. Uh, on the other hand, we are being ruled by a far-right lunatic who's quickly turning the country into a dystopian nightmare, so I don't really know if it's a fair trade there. As for the podcast, I'm kind of all over the place with my taste. Um, I love true crime, but not just that. I love the last podcast on the left uh, as a regular listen, as well as Criminal and Intercepted with Jeremy Scahill. For news, I listen to The Daily, The New York Times podcast, and Today Explained. Uh, other podcasts with set seasons that I really enjoyed were Root of Evil, Dr. Death, Running from Cops, uh, The Standoff, Land of Giants, Bundyville, Serial, of course, S-Town, Slow Burn, The Ballad of Billy Balls. I could go on forever. So it's just really that much easier if you want recommendations to hit me up directly. Um, next up, 
I will butcher this name, and I'm very much sorry because I now know how people feel when they have to say my name in their podcast. But Jas Johal, um, J A S J O H A L A L. So yeah, is there a specific fighter or event that first got you into the sport? There is actually、um, Lyoto Machida. He wasn't really what got me into MMA because I was already starting to like sort of dip my toes in it at the time. But he was the first fighter that I was really invested in following.、Uh, it's really funny that I look back on it now, but yeah, I just thought he was the coolest. And I am not ashamed to admit that I was a total fan girl. I actually admitted it to him years later, and he was super gracious about it.、Uh, But yeah, I think it was just a combination of his style, which at the time people were still kind of struggling to crack, and the way he carried himself too. There was just a mystique about the whole thing, right?、Um, so much so that he was one of those、uh, guys who broke into the mainstream media early here in Brazil. In fact,、um, when I had to write my dissertation to get my journalism degree in college, I wrote it about MMA, and I just thought the professors would find the idea appalling. But、uh, the sort of the main guy in school, one of the most respected scholars there, he ended up being a karate guy, and he liked MMA simply because he liked Lyoto.、Uh, so he was ended up being super supportive of my my project. Um, the first fight that I can remember being really invested in was Machida versus Thiago Silva, which is wild to look back on. Both of them were on these huge streaks, and they were primed to be the next big thing at 205. Obviously, Machida won, and then he went on to win the title over Rashad Evans.、Uh, and then he had his fight with Shogun, his first one, which I know now a lot of people didn't like, but it remains one of my all-time favorites. Call it effective memory, I guess.、Uh, it's hilarious now because I worked with Lyoto a bunch later, and obviously I realized he's just a regular person, maybe just like an extremely nice and just generally pleasant person, maybe nicer than the regular average person, but yeah, pretty much still a person.、Um, so yeah, times, times they do change.、Uh, next one. Speaking of the next big thing at two o five, is another question from Scott Fulton.、Um, Who do you think, if anyone, can be the next face of the 205 division if Jones moves up? I think I'm in the majority here when I say that the person who intrigues me the most right now、um, in the division is Johnny Walker. The main thing is that, as impressive as he's looked in this in his three UFC fights, they've lasted less than three minutes combined. So there's still kind of a big question mark around him there. The good news is that we're Very much about to get that answer because Walker is set to meet Corey Anderson at UFC、uh, at UFC 244. And as far as styles go, I really can't think of many people other than, of course, Jones himself, who can pose as many problems for Walker as Anderson. More specifically, Anderson's wrestling can really be a problem.、Um, so if Walker can get past them, I think that would be a massive statement. And then you add not only Walker's exciting fighting style, but his personality and just like his general star power. And I do see him becoming one of the big guys in the UFC. Again, though, it's a lot of it is riding on on getting past Anderson next.、Uh, moving on to an entirely different <laughs> vibe here, John. I'm just gonna use his first name because he DM'd me. I don't know if he wants to be identified. But、um, yes, with the Trump impeachment being introduced, I feel a real sense of hope in America. All of a sudden, 
I was wondering if there was any sign of hope in Brazil for dealing with Bolsonaro. Okay, warning. I will talk politics now. I do have very left-leaning views, and I'm intensely, profoundly, to my core, anti-Bolsonaro. So what you will hear next will reflect that. That's a tough one. Because I have kind of given up on understanding what's happening in Brazilian politics right now. It's kind of a clusterfuck, and trying to keep up is a recipe for a mental breakdown. But based on what I could engage from afar, I don't see an impeachment per se as a sign of hope here right now. Not so much because I don't really see him getting impeached, but also because if he does, the alternatives aren't that much more encouraging. I think right now his truculence is in a way helpful because it diminishes his power to make maneuvers. And he's sort of like digging his own grave, not only here in Brazil, but as you can see internationally. Say he's ousted. Uh, we run a chance of getting yet another dangerous person, but one who's less of a moron, who puts on a better facade, and therefore who ends up being more of a practical threat. So I don't really see that hope um, that you mean for, say, the next couple of years. I do see it, though, for the future, in that I think this was a bit of a wake-up call. Um, he was elected in, in a lot of anti-PT sentiment. PT, uh, being the Workers' Party, which was in charge for a long time in Brazil and got entangled in corruption scandals. So if the PT candidate um, had won, unless he'd magically fixed all of Brazil's issues, which wouldn't have happened because that's not how politics work, there's a chance the myth of Bolsonaro would have grown. That idea that was being instilled that he'd be the savior of the country would have sort of continued to be fed. And instead, he got elected and showed that he wasn't the freaking messiah. Uh, people within his government are turning on each other. The Amazon is now in the forefront of an international crisis. And his government has also been showing little by little that our democracy isn't as sound, as stable as a lot of people would think. Um, the, dis the dissatisfaction is growing. Of course, there are those who will remain loyal to him until the end. But I think a growing portion of the country has been able to see him and his platform for what they are. And I do think that this sort of shook people awake a bit. That's my hope, at least. Got to have some of that, right? Next is Tom. Oh, my God. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butcher it again. Lepin? Lepin? I don't know. L-A-P-P-I-N. I'm sorry. I'm bad at words. Anyway, Tom. Tom asked me, I know you are Brazilian, but have you ever lived in the U.S.? I picked this one because I get that a lot. And no, I have never lived in the U.S. And I have, in fact, never spent more than a month at a time there. I think a lot of people wonder about it because my accent is sort of mild, at least compared to a lot of Brazilians. And because I have a ton of weird pop culture knowledge. But yeah, I picked all of that up right, right at the mean streets of Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Except I'm very much a privileged middle-class lady, so maybe the middle-class streets. Uh, now, I was planning on patenting my English learning method and selling it for an obscene amount of money, but instead I will share it for free with you. Uh, you might want to write it down. Step one, be a teenage pariah with a bad attitude and no friends. Step two, obtain access to cable television. Step three, Instead of using it to watch Pokemon like the rest of the normal people your age, start consuming age-inappropriate content like Seinfeld, SNL, and yes, I understand how serious this is, Baywatch. There you go, good English. Warning, side effects may, may include questionable morals and a deep feeling of isolation. Eh, worth it if you ask me. 
The next question comes from Kevin Brady at the real Kevin Brady. Very clever.、Uh, in a sport that routinely allows eye pokes, nut kicks, and cage grabs to go unpunished, how the fuck? And I love that he used betting bed language here. Way to go, Kevin.、Um, how the fuck do you take a point from MVP for being a dick? What are some other non-infractions of the unified rules that you would take points for? Okay, some context on what Kevin is saying here.、Uh, Michael Page fought Richard Keeley this past weekend at Bellator Europe, and he was back to his highlight reel self. He finished Keeley with a flying knee, but not before getting punished. He got a point deducted by Dan Miragliata. Miragliata, did I say? Oh my God, Dan Miragliata. Words are hard. Due to showboating. Uh, later, uh, MVP said that Miragliata called him a piece of shit, and then Miragliata didn't deny it.、Uh, he actually said to MMA Fighting that he actually said that under his breath. He didn't really directly say it to Page.、Um, he said he did that after Page told him to fuck off. Basically, a clusterfuck.、Uh, to his credit,、uh, Miragliata admitted that he was in the wrong. But anyway, you don't. Won a ref that emotionally invested in a fight like ever, and MVP did say that it wasn't a new problem with him. So it's a good thing that both Miragliata and Mazzuli, who's in charge of the local commission, said that he won't ref any of MVP's fights ever again.、Um, going back to Kevin's question, I'm with Kevin in that there's a weird precedent, I guess, with the point being taken. You can argue that the language on the unified rules about unsportsmanlike conduct, unsportsmanlike. I'm on a roll here. Unsportsmanlike conduct allows for the punishment, but then we get into this whole new realm of subjectivity. Like how many fighters taunt and play around the cage? I mean, I just think of Diaz and McGregor off the top of my head. And how do you put a limit on what really crosses the line to be worthy of a point deduction?、Um, And like Kevin said, like how often don't we see fighters repeatedly committing fouls and getting away with it? So, it's a complicated scenario.、Uh, I personally wouldn't have taken that point, but Miragliata admitted the ways in which he was in the wrong. So, I don't know. I guess I don't have an answer for you. It's a very thin line to navigate, and I think it just shows that there's a limit to how objective we can get whenever there are humans and human judgment involved. Uh, now, what I would personally take points for: tattoos of people's own last names around their backs. Yeah, so I guess or their bellies too. Yeah, basically people who have their own last names tattooed in big letters across their torso in general. So I guess we should just be glad that I'm not a referee. Hmm. The next one. Oh yay! The next one I'll read comes from Julie Kedzie, who happens to be one of my top three favorite internet people, and whom I will learn to be my guest here if it kills me. She asks, "When do you think the MMA community at large will be ready to accept narrative plurality?" I asked Julie to elaborate on that, actually, because she's way too smart for me. So she kindly did.、Uh, she continued, "How long before people automatically look for complexity and nuance in fight narratives, and allow themselves to reject trash talk as an essential part of promotion? Or how long before they accept how lucky they are for the creative pieces that people like you and Ben and Chad and Cynthia and Esther, etc." Do and treat as necessary components of fight development, as opposed to racist slurs and shitty trash talk. 
Um, she's talking about Ben Folks, Chad Dundas, Cynthia Vance, I think, uh, and Esther Lin. So first off, a massive thank you for Julie, uh, to Julie for putting me in the same group as these people. I'm immensely honored and also for sending a question. Uh, in case you couldn't tell, I think she's just awesome and like the coolest person ever. Second of all, I think that there will always be a segment perhaps the majority uh, of people who will continue leaning toward these like more easily digestible narratives. There is obviously a demand for cheap shots, for fabricated Twitter beefs, and the occasional hotel lobby altercation. And I do get it to a point. There's an obvious human appeal to conflict, right? I'm human too. I watch Botched and 90 Day Fiancé. I can appreciate petty drama as much as an ex gal. But it gets old. And sometimes, as we have seen over and over, it also gets low and offensive or downright unacceptable with the use of slurs and whatnot. On the bright side, as weird as it is for me to sound even slightly optimistic about anything, I do feel like there's a part of the MMA community that's ready to move past that. I think, in a way, we are moving past that sort of McGregor era when we had this one very obvious and mostly effective formula that seemed to take over the narrative. There was a very gimmicky, very look-at-me feel to the whole thing that, for the most part, didn't seem at all organic. And I think, consciously or not, people sort of got a little sick of that. And I take the rise of Jorge Masvidal as a good example of that sort of shift. Uh, we can have a thousand conversations about the mad bad motherfucker title and whether it's good or not. And I won't go into that here, but Masvidal's fight with Nate Diaz is basically a fight between two guys who build their brands on being real and who never really seemed that interested in having brands in the first place. If you look now, Masvidal is really capitalizing on his momentum, but he never really actively sold an image to us. I do get the impression, and I might be off, that we're moving past the fabricated a bit and leaning more toward the genuine and the organic and the real. And in terms of the content that we produced around that, um, in many ways, I think, yeah, the industry is still held hostage by, you know, clicks and the easy stuff and what, you know, McGregor said on Twitter. Uh, but I do think that there is a demand for a different type of thing. I mean, uh, just look at the athletic MMA or even this podcast. Um, not to toot my own horn at all. What I mean is that I don't think that there would have been a space for it a few years ago. And even if there was, I think that the interactions around it, uh, you know, the response I would be getting from people would probably have been way, way different. So I don't know. Maybe this is a naive way of looking at things, but I do interpret these things as a sign that there is at least a growing number of people who are interested in reaching beyond the low-hanging fruit. This next one comes from John Joe Carter. And by the way, if I got like any of the questions mixed up with whomever sent it, I'm sorry, I've been working in this all day and my brain is all scrambled. Just call me out on Twitter. But yeah, I do think that the next one came from John Joe Carter. Uh, what is your favorite conspiracy theory? Are there any that are specific to Brazil and would mean nothing to the rest of the world? Now, that's right up my alley. My favorite conspiracy theory would be everything that has to do with the Skinwalker Ranch, also known as the Sherman Ranch in Utah. 
I won't go into it because there's not enough time and you can Google it. But basically, the place is known as this hotbed of paranormal activity. And the reason why I love it so much is because it's got everything. UFOs, mutilated animals, disappearing cattle, poltergeist appearances. Seriously, it's got it all. Look it up. You won't be disappointed. Uh, as for a Brazilian conspiracy theory, there's this, okay, it's ridiculous. And you also will have to Google it so you get the full visual. But there was this um, character called Fofão. Um, I think the closest thing I can use to compare it to is Alf, the extraterrestrial. I don't know if that's how you call it there. We call him Alf. Um, so Fofão is this, like, he had these, like, droopy cheeks. And he wore these overalls and, like, this striped shirt. And... He just looked crazy. It's just, a, I don't even know what he's supposed to be. Maybe a dog. Um, and the thing is that the, the theory went that the dolls, the Fofone dolls, actually came with knives, like, sewn into the belly. And it's just, everybody just, like, it just ran around. That was actually a little before my time. My older sisters were the one who told this urban tale. But it's just so beautiful in how absurd it is. Uh, I don't know if you'll find it funny as I'm telling you right now, but then I want you to go and Google and see the image. And once you see what Fofon looks like, you will realize that he didn't really need a knife to freak you the fuck out. Okay, this one, I won't even say the name of who he came from because I will for sure butcher it so bad. I'll just spell it. <laughs> K-R- O-L, with an accent on the O, and S-Z-O-S-Z-A-N-A. I'm not even going to dare. I'm not Laura Senko. I can't pronounce difficult names. Um, Not difficult. That sounds prejudiced. Where this person's from is probably a very common name. But yeah, it's my intellectual limitation. Anyway, Kroll, I don't know. (laughs) Why am I trying? They asked, what would your walkout song be? And I won't even pretend like I haven't spent an unreasonable amount of time thinking about this. Uh, the answer is, if I had it my way, it would be bad reputation. I legit walked out to it in my graduation, which, fuck I'm old, happened before Ronda Rousey had her UFC deb- debut. Uh, for obvious reasons, I can't use that anymore. So I would go with Love You Till It Hurts by the Donnas. Next up comes from Seth. And Seth's handle is Beer Bike Bro. Seth, my man, you need to answer some questions about this one. But anyway, Seth asked me, uh, the California measurement of weight regained by fight night seems the best option to weight cutting. It won't, it won't just go away. And in general, fighters will understandably want any advantage they can get. But we can't even get unified rules. So it all seems so pointless. Is it? <sighs> Um, that's a really hard question. And in order to define it, um, I'm going to use a quote. I'm just stole a quote from Ben folks because he wrote a really good story about it for us. He actually wrote a story about the California commission and the changes that they suggested. Um, and he basically said, solving a problem so complex and yet so ingrained in the MMA culture is no easy thing. It's probably going to take more than a couple of years and it will likely require cooperation from all sides, regulators, promoters, and fighters. It's a matter of changing people's minds as well as their habits. And I agree. It's a really, really difficult problem to solve. I am not even going to pretend like I have the answers, but I do agree that the California way seems to be the most reasonable one. It's really a matter of enforcing it. Um, 
whether that's going to happen in the near future or not, I don't know. But uh, you do use the word pointless. And I don't know if I would use that. Because, you know, if is anything that really starts a conversation and shows an alternative way, is it ever really pointless? Now, the next question... Dude, this this person's name, it's legit. The game's tavern playing Final Fantasy X2. I'm not even joking. Um, who or what inspires you the most to keep going and being confident in achieving what you have and more? Okay, that's a difficult one to unpack. But I wouldn't say there's a who who inspires me most. It would be a what. And this is going to sound insanely cheesy and cliche, but it would probably be the stories that I haven't told yet. The reason why MMA continues to be so appealing to me after all these years is the fact that it's got such rich characters, you know, like I'm past the stage where I'd be happy to sit in front of the computer all weekend and just consume a bunch of random MMA. I'm not much of a technical breakdown type of person, so it takes a little emotional investment for me to get into it. And after all these years, I still get that emotional investment because there's just a never-ending supply of interesting people coming into fighting all the time. And these people will go anywhere from the super smart to the kind of crazy to very often both. And every time I interview someone, even if someone that I talk to a bunch of times, I always feel like I'm getting something new, you know? So, yeah, lame, but that's my motivation. Uh, But you did use a word that I would never apply to me, which is confident. I have never, ever, ever once in my life felt confident about anything that I did. Uh, So I see these people who are like, I know I can get there. So I will work hard to achieve it. And I'm in awe of them because that's not at all (laughs) a feeling that I can relate to. I don't work toward a goal, if that makes any sense. And I don't think in terms of things that I have to achieve. Like, if you ask me where I want to be professionally 10 years from now, I don't know what to tell you. I don't really think about that. I just work on whatever I'm working on at the moment and try to make it as good as I can. And then I also try to make sure I'm not harming anyone in the process. So it's really as simple. Uh, It's really that simple for me. Um, Next question comes from Eduardo. Um, How do... Brazilians across socioeconomic spectra perceive the Gracie family, athletes, showmen, clowns. Do they have notoriety or celebrity at all outside of MMA fandom? Well, let's first emphasize this bit here. Brazilians across socioeconomic spectra. So fancy, right? I can't even deal. Anyway, to answer this gentleman and scholar, uh, they do have notoriety and celebrity in general. Uh, Someone who doesn't follow MMA closely asks what I do for a living, for instance, there's a chance that they will immediately associate it with the Gracie. I'll give you a visual so you know what I mean. Say I'm at a bar and I'm paying attention to a replay of a fight. A guy, and for the sake of this analogy, imagine he's wearing a button-up shirt with vertical stripes and pastel colors. He's coming straight from work. He decides to strike up a conversation with me. I answer politely. He tells me what he does for a living. He's a lawyer, by the way, and not the cool type that defends poor people. And I say what I do for a living. Then he says something like, oh, that's cool. I haven't been following much lately, but I used to be a huge fan. Like back when that guy, what was his name? Something with an R, Royce Gracie. Yeah, that one. Yeah, he was awesome. If you've noticed some weird specifics there, it may or may not be because I have had this interaction multiple times. But yeah, so I'd say based on the impression that I get today that 
they are mostly viewed in a positive light. But there is also some bad baggage going back to the days of jiu-jitsu versus luta livre, especially in Rio. There was a time, particularly in the 90s, when people equated jiu-jitsu protectioners with, with thugs. Um, and Ryan Gracie, for instance, who died in prison under very tragic circumstances, he was uh, a very public figure and a very controversial one. Um you know, for a while, you'd regularly see a headline about somebody who done some fucked up shit. And the headline would make sure to say that that guy was a jujitsu fighter, even if they taken like a class or two. So there's a little bit of that negative heritage. But mostly, I'd say that they're generally generally known as uh, precursors to MMA as we know it. And names like Hoisey, they carry weight, even for those who don't follow the sport that closely. Uh, Jesse Sawyer. From each weight class, name the fighter you'd most enjoy sharing a joint coffee drink with. While joints are illegal in Brazil and like kids don't do drugs, so let's just go with coffee. I made a list, but I'll just go through them without uh, going into detail because we don't have forever here. But quick list. Heavyweight, Juan Adams. Light heavyweight, Glover Teixeira. Middleweight, Julian Marquez. Welterweight, Jorge Masvidal. Lightweight, Dan Hooker. Women's lightweight, Kayla Harrison. Men's featherweight, Harry Corrales. Women's featherweight, Leslie Smith. Men's bantamweight, Sean O'Malley. Women's bantamweight, Jessica Rose Clark. Men's flyweight, Joseph Benavides. Women's flyweight, Jojo Calderwood. Women's strawweight, Angela Hill. Nailed it. Okay, next up. Jay Zeus. That's really the name there. Uh, who can be the best face of MMA in Brazil? The next Vitor. I'm a huge fan of Paulo Costa, but how moving, uh, how moving to America can affect his stardom in Brazil? Uh... It's hard to say the next Vitor because the times are totally different and the scope of MMA in Brazil is totally different and the way people are promoted is totally different. We sort of passed that big boom. So I don't think that we'll have an ex-Vitor or an ex-Anderson or even an ex-Aldo. Uh, but at least among the mildly educated MMA fans, both Costa and Johnny Walker are making waves. Since I've already talked about Walker, Costa has a good uh, combination of factors uh, for fame. I mean, he's got the type of fighting style that can really appeal to a large audience. He's young. He's actually very well-spoken in Portuguese. And he does seem to enjoy the attention, which helps. Um, he's interested in making a brand for himself, and that's not always the case. So he's got all those things going for him. And that ties with another question that I got from Arion Armeniakos. Sounds Greek. Okay, I botched every name. I'm so sorry to everyone. Uh, but Arian asks, which Brazilian fighter is the likeliest to be the next UFC champion? I always thought that if Costa could get past Joel Romero, he'd be making a big statement, and he did that. So let's just say I'm not ruling him out as uh, a possible next champion. I also want to throw Thiago Santos's name in the hat. Um, we all saw what he did against Joan Jones, and though there is the question of how he returned from injury, and also how Jones would adjust um, in a rematch after that first fight, or even if Jones will still be champion by the time Santos returns, I think he's done enough, at least, to give us reasons to believe, right? And a sneaky threat that I'm going to throw in there just for shits and giggles is welterweight Vicente Luque. He's been on quite a tear. Uh, most recently beat uh, Mike Perry in that extremely bloody fight. And he's now scheduled to fight even Wonderboy Thompson. So a win there could really put him in a great position. Um, sorry if I forgot people. I committed to a lot of answers from one day to the other. But at the top of my head, uh, these are the names that I can think of.
And that is all the time that we have for today, unfortunately. Uh, again, I'm so sorry I couldn't get to all of you. But there are some questions that I legitimately just felt like I needed more time to think about. Uh, or that I do plan on discussing in further detail in future occasions and in future episodes. But anyway, I really can't thank you enough for submitting them. You all went well above and beyond and I'm just super grateful. Uh, and if you're that interested in what I have to say for reasons that are entirely beyond me, feel free to reach out directly and we can chat about whatever it is that you want to chat. If not, I will see you next week for more MMA and other stuff. Bye.